0: Listen, that's something to follow, your Martin, you know? His little phrase said, Mr. Awesome, is what it said. I don't know if y'all noticed that. I think Collier edited that video or something. Um, Collier, I imagine that there are <clears throat> some... Uh, Sunday school teachers I had when I was a little boy that are real, super surprised that I'm the one standing here 35 years later after being called to be a pastor. So um, I don't know why I'm talking to you about that. But, um, uh, um, you know, I, uh, one of the things I, I thought of uh, in our study in the book of Zechariah is that God has called us to a life of purpose uh, there's a purpose that God has for our lives and one of the things I wanted you to be thinking about in this sermon series is what is it that God has for me uh, to do? And I think there are several significant truths that God has been teaching us in our series uh, in the book of Zechariah. But a couple things that I want to, uh, for us to see this morning uh, from the sixth chapter of Zechariah is that in the midst of the purpose that God has called us to, we need to see the bigger picture. What God has called us to do is only a small part of what God is doing in a larger sense. And I think for us to do what God has called us to do, we have to see our part as a part of the larger picture. The other thing that I want us to understand today is that Our source of life, our source of life for what God has called us to do is only found in Jesus Christ. And even though the book of Zechariah is in the Old Testament, I want us to see today that God was looking beyond Zechariah's day and he was looking to the day in which he would ultimately fulfill uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, his ultimate purposes, which will always factor in to our lives. Um, we'll have the scriptures on the screen, but if you have your Bible, you can turn to Zechariah, the sixth chapter. In this fall, we are talking about uh, from the prophet Zechariah, the glory in small things. Um, I want us to actually... Look at the last verse of Zechariah six. First, it's verse fifteen, because I believe verse fifteen gives us uh, kind of a, a summary of where we are in these sermons. Uh, but in Zechariah six fifteen. Notice with me, and I want to just draw out just briefly three little points that kind of bring us up to date or help us summarize as we come to the end of chapter 6 kind of where we are uh, in the book of Zechariah. And so it says in Zechariah 6.15, Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. There are three uh, sentences or statements in verse 15, and it uh, each one of them speaks to kind of where we are. The, the first one he says, he says, even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. And so just remember that uh, the historical context for the book of Zechariah is they are, have been called to build God's temple. That is the task. That is the God-given purpose that God has for the people in Zechariah's day. The Babylonians have come; they've taken them to exile. But God has engineered circumstances. They came back, and they initially started with great enthusiasm to be to rebuild the temple, which was the one thing that God gave them to do. Life happened. 14-year pause, God sends Zechariah and Haggai and says, hey, it's time that you get back to doing what God has called you to do. And it takes them from the year 520 to 516 AD, four years to rebuild the temple. But that's where they are. They are in the process of rebuilding the temple as Zechariah uh, has the visions and the words from God. That second phrase, he says, then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is actually a phrase that we've seen already twice before and it's a very significant statement. And what God says is, I'm going to give you a glimpse not only into the heavenly realm, but I'm going to give you a glimpse into the days ahead and what I'm ultimately going to do in bringing about my redemptive purpose in the world. And God says, when you see it come to pass, you will know it was Me, Brother Steve, it's like calling that shot in basketball. You know, you're playing horse. There were old commercials, McDonald's commercials with Larry Bird and uh, Michael Jordan, I think. And it's like, watch this. You know, you got to call your shot. Um, I don't know why I thought of that. I'm talking to you right now. But anyhow, I know we both played basketball back in the day. But uh, it's almost I get this sense of God says, I'm going to tell you hundreds of years before these events unfold, and when they unfold, you will know it was me. There will be no question. But then that last phrase, uh, he says, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And I draw our focal theme for the whole sermon series from that phrase, uh, from the first sermon I have said this this statement that our present obedience projects into the future, and it's even amplified for God's glory. Our present obedience projects into the future, and is amplified for God's glory. And I've set the context, the perspective of the book of Zechariah with this phrase. God says if you will diligently obey what I've called you to do, even though the world may look at it and say it's a small thing, know that it it is something that I am going to use in the future for my glory in a way that you cannot imagine. If you diligently obey just do what it is that god has called you to do and know that it will have it will have implications for generations and god will do something in those that obedience in small things whether that's in your family whether that's in your work at school whether it's in ministries that you do at church know that if you will diligently obey what god has called you to do that god We'll project that into the future, amplify it, and it will be for his glory. That was the challenge for the people of Zechariah's day. And 2,500 years later, it's the challenge for us. Um, Zechariah 6 breaks down into two sections. Verses 1 through 8 is the eighth and final vision, which I'm going to cover in like minutes here in just a second. Don't start your clock yet. Uh, one through eight is the eighth of eight visions that have really been our focal part, uh, focal point uh, for all these weeks since we started. Um, I want us to look though more intently this morning at verses nine through fourteen. Immediately after God gives Zechariah the final vision, he gives him an assignment, something to do. And it's something very significant. Uh, And it projects out into the future. And I want us to spend most of our time this morning with that. Let me read the eighth vision, uh, verses 1 through 8. Zechariah 6 It says, and just make just a couple comments. It says, then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, "'What are these, my Lord?' And the angel answered and said to me, "'These are four spirits of heaven "'who go out from their station "'before the Lord of all the earth. "'The one with the black horses "'is going to the north country, "'the white are going after them, "'and the dappled are going toward the south country. "'Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, "'that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth.'" And he said, go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me saying, see, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. The eighth vision is the vision of four chariots pulled by four horses uh, vision eight parallels vision one, which we saw in chapter one, which was four horses patrolling the whole earth. And we talked about how God, it was a statement, it was a visual statement of God saying, I am fully aware of everything. My spirit is universal. It knows everything that is going on in the world. Don't don't think that I don't know what's going on. Um, it's interesting that the visions begin with first with four horses and now with four horses uh, pulling four chariots. The chariots were military vehicles. And so really, vision eight builds on vision one. It's not just that God is patrolling the earth, but God has sent out his forces in the earth. Four being the number uh, that speaks of the four winds, the four corners of the earth, however you want to put it. God's forces are moving throughout the entire world world Uh, the chariots come between bronze mountains which means visually that they are coming from the heavenly kingdom these are not earthly this these are uh, heavenly uh, soldiers the army of God that is going out the point of vision eight is that God is working worldwide. God not only knows what's going on, vision one, but God is working his purposes worldwide. He is sending out his forces. It's not in verses one through eight, but we will see it in the latter verses. There is a, a phrase, and we really haven't talked much about this, that is used, it is a name for God, and it, it and it. Pertains to what we're talking about right now. It is used 52 times in the book of Zechariah. In fact, there are only, I, I calculated about 270 times that this name for God is used. 52 of those, almost 20% in all the Old Testament, are used in the book of Zechariah, even though it's only 14 chapters long. And it is what invariably Zechariah calls God. He is the Lord of hosts. And the word host is a word that describes the heavenly armies, the angelic beings that go out to do God's work. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the one who has a heavenly army that comes between the bronze mountains and he's going out in the midst of your lives when you are called to do the purpose of God. Don't think. That somehow you're the only one working from God. God gave the visions to pull back the curtains and what did he want them to see? No, I want you to know that I am working worldwide out my purposes. And sometimes in the midst of our lives and maybe what might be considered from an earthly perspective, a a little assignment that we lose sight of the larger picture, that it's not just what God is doing in my life. No, God is the God, even though we cannot see it with our human eyes, who is working worldwide at his purposes. And so, uh, vision eight is the statement that God makes to his people that he is working worldwide. While we are doing our small part, know that God is working worldwide. That's vision eight. That was probably more than two minutes. But anyhow, you all know when the preacher says two minutes, that means maybe five, if not ten. Or an hour. It appears, when we come to verse nine, that uh, this happens immediately. There is an assignment that God gives the prophet uh there are dates uh i i we won't go back and look at them but chapter 1 verse 1 says hey on this date god spoken did this uh when he comes to the first vision it says on this date which was 4 months later god spoke it's i remember it being february of 519 that's what i remember in my mind from that sermon It appears that the eight visions all occur in one night. It almost appears that when the morning came, God said, there's one thing I need you to do. Now, the reason I say this is because when we come to chapter 7, all of a sudden we've pushed the story out two years. And he's going to say, now God spoke to me about this. But there's not a date when we come to verse 9. It appears to me eight visions all occur at night. And when he wakes up in the morning, verse 9, God says there's something specifically I need you to do. Enough with the visions. (laughs) Let's get down to what, you know, I've called you to do as the prophet of God. And so it says in verse 9, and I just want to walk through these verses. Uh, It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying... So he's seen visions, but now you're going to see the pattern in the rest of the book that God speaks, because this is what God does. How does God communicate? God speaks to prophets who then speak to God's people. He says in verse 10, receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah four men. Do you know who these four men are? I don't either. Uh, We don't know. But what verse 10 tells us is that there are four men apparently that have come from Babylon from exile and they have brought resources with them. And uh, it ends up, I don't know what all they brought, but Gold and silver is included in that and so he calls them. These are the men that have come from Babylon or Technically from Persia now who's overtaken the Babylonians and has come to the land with resources Uh, And he says in verse 11 Take the silver and gold that they have brought Make an elaborate crown and set it on the head head of Joshua the son of Jehoshadak the high priest. This is the assignment. Four men have come. At least part of what they've brought is gold and silver. I want you to take that gold and silver and I want you to make an elaborate crown and I want you to set that crown on the high priest's head. Um, now, this is unusual. There's a statement that God is making here. Uh, Joshua is the high priest Uh, Levi was the priestly tribe. There's 12 tribes of Israel Uh, Levi is one of those And a priest had to come from the tribe of Levi Joshua son of Jehozadak comes from Levi. He is the high priest But in Israel The priests came from Levi, but the kings came from the line of David from the tribe of Judah. And so, uh, we've seen Zerubbabel earlier in the book of Zechariah. He is the the political leader. Joshua is the religious leader. And in Israel, they were not to mix. In fact, there's stories in the Old Testament, David takes the showbread from the From the priest, he is the king. Hey, that's not right. You're not supposed to do that. There's the kingly side, the political side of it. There is the religious side uh, from the tribe of Levi, the kingly side from the, the tribe of Judah, and they are not to mix. All of a sudden, when we come to the vision, in Zechariah 9, God says, I want you to take a kingly crown, and I want you to put it on the head of the high priest. Uh, the priest can't be king. The king can't be a priest. They come from different tribes. So this is is an odd uh, demonstration uh, according to their preconceived notions. The priest stood in the place of sacrifice and they were intermediaries between God and man. The sinners came with the sacrifice. The priest sacrificed it. It was made right with God. Day by day, they did this. There were yearly feasts. The priest stood and made intercession in the place of sacrifice for the people. The king was the uh, political ruler. Kings wear crowns, and kings sit on thrones. But when we come to Zechariah 6, he says, take the the crown and put it on the priest's head. He mixes the two. And this is what God says in verses 13 and 14. It says, then speak to him, saying, thus says, here's my name, the Lord of hosts, that I was talking about earlier. This is what the Lord of hosts says Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the thought in that last phrase is, there will be peace on both of the offices, both priest and king. That's what God says. Put the crown on the priest's head and then speak these words. This is what I want you to know. The words that God speaks on that occasion. Occasion. Go beyond Joshua. Joshua cannot be the ultimate fulfillment of what God says. Verses 12 and 13. You can't. Joshua, the words transcend Joshua. They go beyond him. God was pointing Not to Joshua, but God was pointing to someone who was greater. Joshua is not the ultimate fulfillment of what God says here. In fact, what we learn is that Joshua was not God's ultimate solution. One thing, he was not the branch. Uh, Before Zechariah isaiah and jeremiah spoke about the branch and the branch is uh this imagery um isaiah 11 1 later in maybe about verse 10 of that chapter then in jeremiah 23 jeremiah 33 there is a branch one day god will raise up a branch from the stump of jesse The branch had to come from Jesseus, the father of David. It had to come from David's line or the line of Judah. Joshua was not of the tribe of Judah. He ultimately could not fulfill this role. He could not be the branch because he did not fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah. He does not come from David's lineage. In fact, historically, we can say... Uh, Joshua never becomes king. So there never came a point historically where all of a sudden Joshua sits on a throne and he is the political ruler over Israel. It never happened. So the statements, the prophecies, what God says here go beyond Joshua. There is someone who is out there who is a greater uh, one, who is coming, who will fulfill this in time. The other thing about Joshua is that he does not return the glory to the temple. It says in verse 13, it says, and he shall bear the glory. I've mentioned this earlier that uh, Ezekiel's prophecies, which precede uh, Zechariah's, he has this vision when the Babylonians were coming to overtake the temple that the Shekinah glory of God lifted off the temple. You got to get this. (laughs) It moved out the eastern gate, and whoop! It was gone. Uh, his uh, geographically, if you standing in where the temple was, the old holy of holies, and you went straight out, you would go through the eastern golden gate, and you would go down the Kidron Valley, and you would come up. Guess what? The Mount of Olives. Ezekiel prophesied that someday the glory of God would return to the temple it would come from the mount of olives down the kidron valley and it would come through the eastern gate and it would go into the temple it never happened the rabbis talked about this that when the temple was destroyed even though they rebuilt the temple the shekinah glory of god did not return But the prophecy said that the glory would come to that place, Uh, Malachi, I think chapter three. Zechariah did not fulfill the promise of returning the glory to the temple. Yes, he rebuilt the temple, but the Shekinah glory of God was not there. But the promise was that someday it would come. The ultimate reason we know that this prophecy speaks beyond Zechariah is because, I'm sorry, beyond Joshua is Joshua, get this, dies. In verse 14, it talks about how that, it says, now the elaborate crown shall be a memorial in the temple. I read that the other day and I thought, that's interesting. You know what's implying Is that for generations that crown will be there, but that crown will not be on Joshua the high priest's head. Do you know why? Because he died and they buried him. And the crown, well, I don't mean that to sound so, I'm sorry, Daryl Smith, probably that's the wrong tone or emphasis. He's dead. But they left the crown in the temple for a memorial. But the man who wore the crown was dead. He no longer stood and made intercession for God's people because this is what happens to people. They die. They will not always be in the place. They will die. The words of God point... to a greater person that is beyond Joshua. And in fact, the very name Joshua begins to give us (laughs) indication of who ultimately fulfills this because the Old Testament name Joshua, when you move it through Aramaic Greek and you get it to the New Testament, the Old Testament Joshua becomes the New Testament name. You're not going to believe this. Jesus. Even the name begins to point us to the one. It is Jesus who fulfills the prophecy of the branch. He comes from the lineage of David. (laughs) Even really, one footnote historically is that uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, but it's not his hometown. He was from Nazareth. The interesting thing, historically, is that uh, years before uh, Jesus, Nazareth was settled from people from Bethlehem. And when they named it, they called it Nazareth, which comes from a Hebrew word that is the word for shoot. Not shoot, but a shoot, a branch that comes out of a stump, a shoot there's probably another word for that it's the hebrew word from isaiah 11 and it's interesting that when the people from bethlehem moved and they settled in nazareth they called it a shoot it is a shoot from bethlehem we're we're an offshoot But it goes back to the prophecy that there will be a shoot that will come out of Jesse and of all the hometowns that Jesus could have been raised in. He was raised in Nazareth to fulfill that prophecy of being a branch. And when we come to Jesus' lineage, he's not only from David's lineage which is on his mama's side, But you see, Jesus was greater than any tribe. His mother and even Joseph, her husband, were from the tribe of Judah. But Jesus is the Son of God. You say, how can a person, because this is the ultimate fulfillment, that there would be this person that would be priest and king. How is that possible? How can you combine the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi? But in Jesus, you can, because he's the son of God. And in fact, when you look at at, um, Psalm 110, it speaks about how Jesus, this messianic figure, is is the son of God, but he is king who will rule, but he is priest who will make intercession. And ultimately, historically, what we know in the Bible is very clear about this is the prophecies would be that the glory of God would return back to the temple. And so the biblical writers are so explicit to talk about how Jesus walked down the Mount of Olives, Brother Ted, and he crossed the Kidron Valley and directly across the eastern or golden gate, and he went straight through the gates, and in fact, John records that when Jesus went up on that occasion, that he cleared out the money changers and the people that sold in the temple. And the religious leaders stopped him and said, by what authority? How, how dare you? Why do you do this? And that was the occasion that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days, I will build it. They said, it has taken us 46 years to build this and you will re-destroy it and build it in three days? And John says, Jesus was not speaking about the building but about his body you see when the glory returns the glory is not in the building it is in a person and the person was the only son of God who returned the glory according to the prophecies to the temple and three years later as what Hebrews would call the great high priest. Jesus did not bring a lamb for the sins of the world, but as the Son of God, he brought himself and was crucified on a cross. What the writer of Hebrews says, the the payment, the lamb of God, the the final lamb of God who takes away the sins, not of just that one sinner, but the sins of the world. What the writer of Hebrews described as once for all, that Jesus Christ came and he sacrificed himself as the ultimate payment for our sin, as the great high priest. But the Bible says you're not going to believe this. On the third day, he rose again. And 40 days later, he ascended to the Father. And you know what the Bible says? It's that God has exalted him. And you know what place God has given him? The right hand of the throne. That he sits... And you know what the Bible says that Jesus does, and you can read about this in the book of Hebrews. He always makes intercession for us. But he doesn't have to sacrifice anymore because the final sacrifice was made. And Jesus, as the intercessor, stands in the, in the, at the throne room of God and pleads his blood that was shed on the cross the sins of his people. As a priest, he stands and makes intercession always before the throne of God. He is the great high priest and the Bible says that even though he inaugurated a kingdom when he came in his first coming and he sent forth his spirit to be the work in the world, to restore the world to his kingdom that someday... Jesus will come again, and he will be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And his kingdom will be set, and everything will be according to the way that He prescribes. He will be the king of King, kings and the Lord of Lords. When he returns again, he will finalize his kingdom. From Zechariah 6, know that Joshua was not the final solution in God's scheme of redemption. Jesus was the final solution for God's redemptive purposes in the world. And when, when, he, when they saw what Zechariah did, It pointed them beyond Joshua to Jesus who would be the ultimate sacrifice, ultimate solution for God's redemptive purposes in the world. The people in Zechariah's day looked in the future for that one who would come, who would be priest and king. Today, 2,000 years after Jesus, we look back. Our greatest need, the greatest issue in our life is who will be our Savior and who will be our King. Who will be our Savior who will make us one right with God, the Lord of hosts? And who will be the one Who will be our king that will provide provision and protection in our life? Who will we give our allegiance to? And make no mistake about it, all of us will choose a savior and we will choose a king. And it could be possible we just choose ourselves to save ourselves and to be the king of our own life. But the greatest issue of our life is who will be our Savior and who will be our King. Jesus is the one who loved us enough to die for our sins, was raised from the dead, is exalted at the right hand of the Father, who always lives to make intercession for us, and someday His kingdom will be established for all of eternity. And for us today, that we get to make a choice. It was something the people in Zachariah's day looked forward to. It is something we look back to. And we have a choice today. To choose Jesus to be our Savior and King. I want to pray as we close and we'll have a song of response today. Um, what an amazing plan. That God has executed through Jesus the ultimate solution to our problems in life. Um, Before we pray, I want you to know that we're going to sing a song. It will be a song of response. You can come to the altar if you would like to pray. And at the end of that song, uh, Byron and Will and I will be at the front. You'd like to visit with us after, but we'll be dismissed after that song. But if you'd like to spend some time, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you have commitments to make related to salvation, uh, baptism, church membership, or you have a need in your life, you'd just like to talk with us about, we'll be uh, available for that. Uh, would you stand with me and let me pray. Father, today, we thank you um, for your ultimate solution in Jesus' And Father, it amazes me that so many years, really from all of eternity, you knew what the solution would be. And Father, thank you that you knew what our greatest needs would be. And we thank you that Jesus fulfilled all of that. And we pray not only would we choose for Jesus to be Savior and King of our lives, uh, but Father, we would live in that faith every day of our life. And so, Father, we trust this to you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.